Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. I would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Tongva and the Shumas on which this podcast is being recorded. I think it's important to acknowledge the original and current occupants of this land because history as it is taught in the U.S. is inherently racist, revisionist, and centers white supremacy. The Tongva historically inhabited the Los Angeles Basin and the Southern Channel Islands. Those of you who are familiar with Southern California will recognize some of these Tongva place names. Pacoima, Tahunga, Topanga. Toipurina was a Tongva medicine woman who lived during the 1700s, who like many of her people opposed the colonialistic actions of the Spanish missionaries. She rallied six of eight villages in an organized rebellion against the missions, which unfortunately failed. When asked about her actions, she was a poor Jeff said, I was angry with the Padres and the others of the mission because they had come to live and establish themselves on our land. Her punishment was banishment. Even one of the U.S. fondling fathers, Thomas Jefferson, said, when tyranny becomes law, rebellion becomes duty. In this week's episode, I speak with badass executive director of the New Orleans Film Society, Fallon Young. In our conversation, we discuss the New Orleans Film Festival, the society's programs for Southern filmmakers, and the regionalism and paternalism in the funding world. Because she is a child of Louisiana and a lover of the Crescent City, this week's song is Fats Domino's I'm Walking to New Orleans. Here's our conversation, which was recorded in June 2020. Fallon and I met um, when I attended the New Orleans um, Film Festival, which is put on by the New Orleans Film Society. And you had only been in your job like two months or something? Yeah, I, now I just passed my thir- three year anniversary. So that probably is right. It was in 2017, yeah. And I, and I remember, I think we were at a party and we were yeah, chatting and you said, I was like, oh my God, like you, you had to come in like hitting the ground running. Yes. And I had big shoes to fill. Jolene Pinder is our previous executive director, who's now the ED of Cartemquin. And um, Jolene and Clint really set this organization on the path that it is, is going on now. And I'm grateful for all of that groundwork uh, that was easy to make it hit the ground running. And so you moved there from San Francisco? I did, but I'm originally from the South. My family is from Texas and Louisiana. So um, I was in San Francisco for about 10 years, but I got home as soon as I could. You do not have an accent. Where's your Southern accent? You know, I it's deep. It's deep in there. And the more we talk. It's going to come out. Yeah, it's going to come out because I'll hear, I'll hear your accent a little bit. Right. And it'll creep back out. But I think, you know, at some point when I lived in California, I was like, oh, I have to button this up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> but the more I talk to Southerners, the more it comes back. And, you know, I get on the phone with my family and my partner, Allison, is like, uh-huh. oh, my gosh, who are you? But it's funny. Yeah, it's funny how it's it's in there. I feel like mine comes out after I've had a few few drinks. Or um, when I'm really, really tired. Yes, um, but I've also noticed that more and more people are adopting y'all. Um, and I was talking to um, someone just like a few months ago. I think they were in New York, and they were clearly not from the South, but they were saying y'all. 
and I had to, whenever I hear somebody say, y'all, I have to ask, well, where are you from? You know, because I'm thinking it's like <laughs> one of my Southern people. And she said, well, I'm from New York because she sounded like she was straight up from the Bronx. You know, but she's saying y'all. And I said, well, well, how are you using y'all? I mean, how do you know, <laughs> know about that? And she said she started adopting it because um, it's gender neutral. Yes, it's a great yeah, gender neutral like, pronoun. And I was like, oh my God, like I hadn't thought about that. But then when you really have to get worried is when New Yorkers start saying, how's your mom and them? Yeah, 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 exactly. And them, D-E-M. Yeah, so there are all these like Southernisms, you know, that are like a part of our culture. Um, but I kind of wanted to like give, a, tell a little story about like when I was in New Orleans, it was the first time I had been there since 1999. Um, and I used to go there regularly when I was living in Georgia. But then when I, I moved to Arizona, and well, Florida, Arizona, California, you know, those, I, I really wasn't going as much. And I, I, I don't know, I'm probably the only one who actually like lost weight while she was in New Orleans because I was, I was, but I was eating two meals a day. I was eating whatever I wanted for those two meals because there's a New Orleans food and it's good food and it's Southern and it's Creole. And, and I was also drinking three vodka tonics at least a day. <laughs> and, but I was walking anywhere from seven to 10 miles a day. So that was the new, that's my New Orleans diet. You know, that's great. You know, the festivals in the fall, so it's really the nicest weather in New Orleans. It's a little bit harder to walk like that right now in the summer. In the summer, but it, you know, it is a. It's nice to walk around. New Orleans is a beautiful city. And what impressed me about the festival was the um, essentially who was there. Uh, I hate the word diversity because I think it's just like the minimal you could do. But I would say it's the most diverse festival I've been to. Uh, and also, I would say the most inclusive as far as the film selections and as well as the film makers, because there were films there that year that I know I probably would not have seen anywhere else. Um, there was, I remember distinctly the film, I think it was Chasing Thelma and Louise. Mm -hmm. It was about it's about the reaction to Thelma and Louise, which yes. is amazing. It was like one of my favorite movies. And I really got a chance to speak with that filmmaker and I still follow her on Facebook. But also the environmental films. So it's usually like when you go to festivals, like environmental films are primarily done by, you know, by white white folks. But there was um there are environmental films from a variety of folks of color because like so many people are impacted and and not just like what what would happen with Katrina, how the bayou is essentially this protective barrier against hurricanes, but it's being ravaged because of like, well, climate change, as well as some of the, the big oil interests and um, land interests. Yeah, coastal land loss um, is a frequent topic that's being addressed by a variety of Southern filmmakers. And I, I feel like every time we show a new film, I learn something more about the crisis impact on communities. And it's really healing, I think, for communities to come together and see these stories told from within the community, we're very careful about uh, when we select films that we're we're really trying to prioritize that the directors, you know, and those involved in the film are directly impacted and equipped to tell the story. It's their story, so um, it you know it's something that we really strive for in the programming process for sure. In uh, the bio that you sent me, as well as the um, 
the brief little history on New Orleans Film Society, you, you write about your artist commitments. So um, can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, the, you know, we have two year round programs, a, a director's lab and a producer's lab. Emerging Voices is geared specifically at filmmakers of color living in Louisiana. And the Southern Producers Lab is open to filmmakers from the American South who are producing. We specifically look for in that program for um to build a deeper bench of producers. So we try to prioritize people who really want to produce and grow their producing skills rather than people who may be directing and producing their films. Um, and, and we define the South for that program based on the census data, because there's lots of questions even in the South about who's the South, what's the South. Uh, but we use the census, you know, to determine the states eligible for that. But those programs um, have now served about 70 filmmaker alumni who are very much part of the New Orleans Film Society family. And we track their projects and try to provide them ongoing support. Um, and we're going to launch a grant program for the alumni soon. So uh, it's really, really an exciting development for us as we grow as an organization to be able to offer more cash support to um, those filmmakers and projects. And, you know, the New Orleans Film Festival, too, other than being you know, obviously the presenting aspect of the work is a big part of it, but a lot of the why behind the film festival and the way that it's structured is about filmmaker support, um, whether it's through the creative conference portion with panels and roundtables or the industry exchange that facilitates 300 one-on-one -on -one meetings between filmmakers and industry guests and our pitch competition that's uh, open to Southern filmmakers. We're really looking to leverage the festival for um, to make important connections that can help this work get made and help our, our filmmakers feel supported. Um, and the accent on the South and the organization is, is really strong and growing. Uh, New Orleans does, the film festival does exhibit work from around the world, but about half of the festival's overall lineup is from the South. So in addition to the festival it has in October, there seem to be like smaller festivals that happen throughout the year. I, 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 I'm labeled them the, the, the Frenchy French festivals. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you talk about a little bit about those? Because, you know, New Orleans does have that Creole culture. Yes, yeah. we do have um, a French film festival that's 20 three years running now. Um, it's a smaller festival and we try to show films that touch on French culture in Louisiana and its impact um, and also show new French cinema, contemporary French cinema. Um, it's a beloved community event. And then we do, last year we introduced a series called Place Over Time with the Ogden Museum of Southern Art that we're looking to continue, uh, which is a, a lens on the contemporary South. I think it's so important, um, particularly to document the, the French culture of New Orleans, because at least from my understanding, because of what's really happening to the land there and the decimation of the bayou, that a lot of that culture is being lost. And, and, you know, and because of what happened with Katrina, there are actually fewer and fewer speakers of Creole. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, there there's a lot to be explored in New Orleans history in, in terms of connections with Haiti. And um, that's been, a you know, a, an emerging theme of the festival is how to bring in a more global lens on the French language. It's not all about 
the country of France, but you know, cinephile the French diaspora, yeah, the French diaspora, and um, a variety of francophone audiences that you know don't get an opportunity to engage with the language. And the way that the language is fading here over time is always um, ever present in conversation around that festival. So do you um, reach out to um, filmmakers, like, for example, who like in Martinique or in some of the French speaking countries in Africa, like Morocco and Tunisia as well? Yes, we've had films from the French speaking Congo. We've had um, films from Haiti. We've had films that um, were stories that were set in Louisiana that were half in English and half in French narrative stories. So it's really a pretty wide variety. So I wanted to kind of talk about how um, there seems to be more interest in the funding world uh, around funding like regional documentary filmmakers. And when you hear that term regional, it just means not in New York and not in LA. <laughs> yeah, so um, can you um, just kind of speak to uh, why do you think there's a greater interest in these filmmakers, but also if you want to like speak to the the problematic term for me is problematic of, of regional. Yes, so that is a big question to unpack, uh, but let's let's get into it. Um, I you know I think that overall you know grantors and commercial entities are realizing that there is a really overlooked um, number of storytellers who are operating outside of centers of power in New York and L.A. and who have incredibly nuanced and authentic and resonant stories to tell and are looking to partners like New Orleans Film Society more to connect um, with with these groups of filmmakers and other regional, quote unquote, regional organizations across the country. But it still is really problematic. I, you know, I think about what it's like to run a nonprofit in the South and the dearth of funding um, to keep our operations going, you know, it's a constant struggle. And yet there are organizations out of New York and LA who are getting major dollars to support all the money, all the money to support these regional organizations and tend to tap organizations like ours when they need to reach Southern filmmakers. And we're glad to do that work. We would do it in the middle of the night and without pay because we believe so much in um, our creatives and want to lift them up and connect them to opportunity. But it is really stark when you think about how those resources flow and how often they overlook um, organizations who are very rooted in these communities and connected to filmmakers who direly need resources. Um, we, you know, we've sort of, it's, it's a complicated relationship to this idea of regionalism, but we have started to kind of unpack this in community with filmmakers and with other organizations through an event we call South Summit. And we, it's a, it's a by-invitation convening that we're doing once a year now. And we're looking at these questions, these very nuanced questions of when does it empower us to identify as a regional or Southern maker or Southern institution? And when does it harm us? When is it necessary? When does it serve us? When does it hold us back? And I think they're really complicated questions there. You know, I think there's a lot um, regional, quote unquote, regional makers have in common with other filmmakers who may be living outside of, of centers of resource. And we 
think about that a lot when we're in conversation with other folks in the field, like at DNA in Detroit and thinking about the connections, you know, the similarities between Detroit and New Orleans. Um, but we also have filmmakers say, like, I don't want to be in a regional bucket. I don't want to be looked at as a, a regional voice. I, you know, I want to be lifted up in a different way. And so it's very complicated. Even when we think about, you know, the strands of the festival and how we market the festival, one thing we're thinking about based on feedback from filmmakers is we've for a long time had like a made in Louisiana strand that spotlighted Louisiana content. And we have some Louisiana makers who say, I, I don't want to be in a Louisiana strand. My film should stand on its own without having to come under the banner of where it's made. So so do you think they're thinking that that label of like the, being a Louisiana film actually impacts them when they're going, trying to go through the festival circuit and the people like outside of this region of the South, maybe like, Unfortunately, um, look down on that "quote unquote" label. I think so. You know, I, I think that there is um, they're starting to to become a burgeoning understanding that this region is rich in creativity and capable storytellers. But there are also so many instances of extractive storytelling in our community, and you know, filmmakers being sent in from other places to tell southern stories or to pass over uh, southern talent because there's a, a perception that the the film community is not in a in a place where it has evolved to to produce quality work and that's that's crazy because that is so not not true at all i mean and not only for new orleans but like other places in the south i mean there are so many commercial um commercial filming and narrative filming communities in the South. I mean, if you think about all the shows that are shot in the South, like the talent, all those people aren't coming from LA and New York. There is talent there. Absolutely. But I think there's also just the, you know, the cultural perception that the South is somehow this, you know, very backward place or um, holding the country back on issues, uh, you know, progressive issues. So I think that people also have sort of an intrinsic, uh, maybe, desire to be disassociated with that uh, view. But I, I think that, you know, what I see when I look at the New Orleans Film Festival's lineup as a whole and the kind of stories that we're able to present is a, a lens on the contemporary South that is much different than the story that the media would tell about the South and our communities. And so I think, I personally think there's a lot of power in identifying as a Southern creative and thinking about how to build coalition and relationships regionally. Uh, but I also understand that we have to listen uh, when people say this isn't the frame that I want to be. In. But I, I think really the, the work should be around removing that that stigma um, that the South has. Um, because you know, I, I'm born and raised in Georgia. Um, I went to college in Minnesota, went back to Georgia for six years after, well, after college, I moved to Chicago for a year. I'm like, okay, enough of this winter stuff because there's nothing like a Chicago winter. Like it is, it is painful. It is, it is painful. And that was after four year, four winters in Minnesota. So I went back south and then lived in Florida for um, seven years after living being in Georgia, and then you know began to make work my way west to Arizona and um, California. And people still, like you said, have this idea of the South as being 
backwards and like, uh, you know, extra racist. And like, that is not the case, you know, because racism manifests different ways in different parts of, of the country. So in Minnesota, I experienced for the first time, like the white liberal racism and the whole, I don't see color crowd. Cause that was big when I was in college and, you know, um, and the whole thing about quote unquote being politically correct was like all around, but, um, it's been in Los Angeles where I've been followed in some of the most stores and been stopped, been stopped by the cops the most, you know? Um, the, yeah. So this whole country is, um, racist and it really irks me when I, when I, um, hear people really denigrate the South. I mean, the difference between the South and the North and the West is in the South, they were the signs and, and there were clear Jim Crow laws. But in the North and the West, they were just more subtle about it. But the restrictions were there. Yes. You know, I think it manifests in really insidious ways. And one of the things that I think is really problematic around film funding for Southern stories is that I think there's a similarity between, you know, sometimes funders don't want to see stories of Black people thriving or communities healing or of resilience if there's not a, a journey that looks um, like a very, like a, like a social justice win. Like there's, there's, that's familiar, yeah, that's to, familiar them. Yeah. to them that there is like stories just about joy or, you know, or thriving community are often overlooked because there is this desire to fund and tell um, different kinds of stories. And I think that that really there's an overlap there with the way that Southern stories are funded because there's a perception that um, every Southern Southern story that gets funded should be about correcting what is wrong in the South and not about also the ways that living in this place, you know, build community and the, the ways that culture intersects here. It, you know, it's, it's really a limiting view on what our region is, I think. And I think there's, there's, there's been some, uh, I, would say, I don't know, breakthrough, but there have been like some films that have been able to kind of get beyond that, you know, because the South is, you know, a lot of people consider the South as being more homophobic than any, anybody else. And like, that's BS, you know, it happens everywhere. But films like The Gospel of Eureka, which like ran around the country, and then now um, Bo McGuire's film, Socks on Fire. I love Bo McGuire. I am such a huge fan. Love him. Yeah, I met him and his team at IFP Week. And then, you know, they pitched hot dogs last year. And he was wearing that fabulous jacket. But, and plus, he's so innovative in the way he shows and tells story. Yes. You know, um, but yeah, I think there have been like some breakthroughs, which I hopefully will, will hopefully will showcase the talents of like these very proud Southern, in a good way, <laughs> in a good way, filmmakers. Yes, I hope so too. You know, I, I also, it gets complicated too when regional resources want to fund Southern storytellers, but they don't, they want it to limit it to all production being here too, because there are so many stories that that put the South in conversation with other places. I mean, there are just so many films that I think have are, are trying to get off the ground right now that are being limited by that. I can understand that a teeny bit because you're wanting to keep the money at home. But yeah, it, it does limit 
but also like I've talked with um, some filmmakers like uh, the past few weeks. I don't know how many filmmaker meetings I've done. I don't know, maybe like 60 or 70 with various festivals. My schedule has been insane. And there are some filmmakers who are not from the South that are telling um, Southern stories and um, they can't, you know, because they're not producers from the South, they can't access a lot of funding. And like, and these are folks who the director and producer may uh, are not from South, but they may have a cinematographer or some other crew or who are from the area, or they're doing unique things like, you know, making sure the protagonists get um, compensated in some way, which is like a new thing that's kind of been talked about in the documentary community for the past two years. But I can I can understand that 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 dilemma because um, you know you want to help to grow your film community. I think you know there's there is so much talent here, and New Orleans in particular is just really fortunate. I think to have an outsized ecosystem of support for independent filmmakers, you know the work that Novak does here is incredible. And tell folks what Novak is. Novak is New Orleans Video Access Center. Um, they, you know, I think when we think about the ways that the film society's work is a little bit different than Novak, Novak has a lot of programs for below the line talent and the film society, um, labs are very focused on above the line talent, but that's not, it's not a hundred percent the boxes, but I think a, a differentiator way to think about it, but they, they just do incredible work and, um, their outgoing ED Darcy McKinnon has, you know, is now leaving to produce full time, which is really exciting, but has been a great mentor uh, to a lot of our filmmakers and our programs. And, um, you know, but I, they're also, you know, we've, we've done, we've gotten to know the Southern Documentary Fund folks more intimately recently and been to the convening. And it's really exciting to see some growing support in our region, but it's, it's, Still, there's still opportunity to invest, you know, in in filmmaker support organizations and regional filmmakers to do more and do better. But also, I would say um, invest directly in those areas because um, there it seems like a lot of the funding for quote unquote regional regional um, filmmaking organization or filmmaker support organizations has to go through a quote unquote East Coast or or West Coast organization. Um, it in order for that to happen, and so I wonder, like, like, why do you think the, like the higher up like funding organizations don't recognize, like, hey, we could just like maybe give this money to these folks directly? I think there's a lot of very complex dynamics at play. I mean, one question is how do these smaller organizations even get in the room when there are relatively few opportunities to meet face to face with some of the major national funders? I mean, for us. We've been pretty limited as to how many people we can get to Sundance just because that opportunity is so expensive. And when we go, we've got filmmakers sleeping on the floor of the condo. We got, you know, people are stacked everywhere in there. But I think, you know, there are relatively few places to have those face-to-face meetings. And, you know, I think there is also such competition for funding amongst filmmaker service organizations that our peers are not making uh, introductions that could be made, you know, with those funders. I think it's just really complex. And also, you know, with major foundation funding, you have to have a budget of a certain level to get a significant grant. And that initial investment is 
you know, is everything. For us, I feel like we're an organization that just passed its million dollar budget mark a year ago. And, um, you know, having first time support from just films at the Ford Foundation and our first Andy Warhol Foundation grant has opened up the ability to even have a lot of conversations that people weren't taking seriously before. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think I hope that funders think about this moment of, you know, of reflection about equity on so many levels and think about you know, the way that they're investing regionally, because there's a lot of great work and, and great, great work being overlooked from the institutional level and filmmakers too. Absolutely. But also, I mean, so many filmmakers are doing their work on a shoestring yes. and they're making beautiful work. So like, imagine um, if folks had some actual real support around that. Absolutely. You know, we're, we've been able to kind of track funding through our um, Emerging Voices and Southern Producers Lab. We survey about the kind of support that they're getting. And we have seen an increase overall in the number of grants that selected filmmakers are winning um, and, they're, and growing budgets. So I think things are trending, you know, in the right direction, but there's still a gap. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really kind of almost equivalent to the whole, like, like the conversation around um, like generational wealth. Yeah, so like the bigger filmmaking support organizations on the East Coast and on the West, well, New York and LA have been around longer, you know, well, not necessarily have been around longer. It's just like we've had access to the money just by a function of like where where they are. Because the New Orleans film, you been, like 30 something years, the Orleans Film Society? We're 30, yeah, 30, our 33rd festival, yeah. And, but also, I think in the funding world, there's this desire to quote unquote, like give to uh, give money to a known entity. Like, you know, that they're going to do that that well, which is the same thing that happens with filmmakers. That's why you see the same filmmakers getting all the money all the time because they, the funders want to give to a known entity, but someone who's outside of that, who's quote unquote unknown, has to do a lot more to try to to get be seen. Yes. And I think there's also, there has to be a growing understanding of that when you invest in labs in the South, they come with expensive travel because like we have our producers lab in New Orleans and the filmmakers come into New Orleans for the lab. We take them to New York or LA in alternating years. And that trip, you know, requires travel for the entire cohort. And so when you're funding a New York or LA based organization, who's primarily supporting filmmakers that can take those meetings locally without travel, the budgets for these programs look different. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, we we were just opening up a travel fund right before the pandemic hit for Southern filmmakers to get to professional development opportunities. We ended up converting that support to a just unrestricted emergency support because of the pandemic. But that's something that we're trying to remain committed to because we're just worried about Southern filmmakers even being able to get in the room, you know, given the barrier of of access that travel poses and the and the money you have to have to even get in the room to, to take the meetings you need. I mean, travel and hotel and expenses, you know, because I mean, the cost of like LA cost of living is ridiculous, you know, <laughs> compared to some other places. Yeah. 
But it's been really interesting, like taking these cohorts to, you know, even in LA, as we're asking, I, I see filmmakers asking the industry we're connecting them to, like, what what is your advice for me as an emerging filmmaker? And they're like, move to LA. And we're like, no, no, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> no let's all be creative around how people can live and, and make work where they want to live and make work where their roots are, where their families are, where where their heart is. So, I mean, I think the per- the perfect example of that is um, um, Angela Tucker. You know, she's she's moved to um, New Orleans. I think she's originally from LA, but I actually met her in New Orleans um, because when I was going, when my I was headed to New Orleans, my friend Lillian Benson, who's a really amazing editor of documentary films, said, "Oh, I'll, let me introduce you to Angela." We introduced Facebook, and we actually met at the festival. But she left this rat race, and she is. <laughs> prosperous. <laughs> she, she is doing well. Yeah. And um, just to do a, a plug, her, the latest film that she produced uh, premiered at the Human Rights Film Festival. It's called Belly of the Beast. Um, and the director is Erica Cohen. And I did a little bit of archival research on that. Um, so what do you think like some of the um, unique needs are of Southern filmmakers are? I mean, I think we're still a deeper bunch of producers is still very much a need. You know, our program has many more applications than we can support every year. We we support a cohort of about 10, uh, but that seems to be producing skills seem to be uh, at a lack overall. Um, and so I think that that's a big piece to solve. I mean, funding is the biggest piece. The funding is, is, but beyond money, you know, we hear about how important it is to find community and find supportive community. And for those that are even living outside of um, New Orleans, where there is such a close knit independent film community and people are scrapping it together and collaborating and making it work and, you know, wearing so many different hats on each other's films. If filmmakers in the South are more isolated or living outside of um, production hubs of any kind, that can be an even greater challenge, just even accessing equipment. So those are big ones. And then, you know, we talked about the travel support. I think that's a huge one uh, because relationships, you know, I think we're seeing in this area post COVID that there's a lot of connection to be made digitally and on zoom but I think that there's still a, a need for Southern filmmakers to get into the right rooms and to be able to network and build face-to-face community with, with gatekeepers. Um, and that's huge. And not even, not even just like getting into rooms, but also like the interactions that happen like in between films or like at parties or like when you're walking down the, the, the street or you hear someone um, talking, you know, at, at a festival and you were interested in, in their film. You know, a lot happens. Um, a lot of the relationship building happens, happens outside of the formal festival environment, but within the festival itself. Yeah. Yes. And within our labs, I think, you know, one of the biggest um, things that our, our lab filmmakers learn, whether they're in the director's lab or the producer's lab, is just the pitching skill. And if you are not a filmmaker who's able to get to other festivals or see other filmmakers pitch, you just can't hone that skill without being able to see and analyze it as an observer. And I think that's really important that filmmakers be able to see what makes a strong pitch um, and, and the kind of feedback that 
the industry gives when pitch processes are open, I think is incredible. Right. And pitching is so important because, you know, in my um, day job, I read a lot of proposals and I can't tell you like how many proposals I've gotten from people who, when I've been on the phone with them before, they try to tell me about it. And it's just, it's not the way they pitch it. Is it, is it good or interesting? But then I read a proposal. I was like, Oh my God, you know, and, and, and it, but also like people have different s- skill sets. So people, some people have a, a better command of the written word than the verbal, but, um, but I can imagine that if some of these folks were talking about their project to someone who actually has the ability to fund, they, um, uh, they may not be sold. They're not going to go to the next step of, Hey, tell me, tell me, you know, send me something, you know? And so being able to talk about your project is, um, so important, but you need to be trained to talk about your project because it doesn't come naturally to a lot of people, yes. but it can, it can be learned and you can learn how to do it and do it well. Absolutely. So what are the your, the New Orleans Festival? What are some of the posts? Well, I guess we're not really in post-COVID. We're not in post-COVID. <laughs> right now, unfortunately, we're still like, even though people are trying to act like we're post-COVID, but we're not. Wear your mask. Wash your hands, y'all. <laughs> yes. So our plans are still evolving. So um, I will disclaim that anything I tell you right now could change tomorrow. I feel like I wake up every day and I'm in a new world. And um, I think we need to do everything online. And then I think, no, that's crazy. We, we're we going to be okay by November. Filmmakers are like, see you in November. And I'm just like, are we really going to see each other? I don't know. I, I think right now, you know, we're we're just thinking about organizational capacity, uh, like many nonprofit organizations, this has been a very difficult time for funding. I mean, we canceled a gala, we, without in-person events, that's money. And a lot of, a lot of the individual support that is needed and corporate support, especially from vendors in the community. A lot of our sponsors are vendors who are not working on productions right now because production is shut down. You know, we're looking at an overall pretty significant budget reduction in the year to come, just like many other nonprofits are. So we're thinking about ways to spread out everything that's under the umbrella of the festival over several months instead of eight days. Um, right. And that's what a lot of festival, I mean, hot dogs did that. Theirs was kind of like over two months of like the industry meetings were like, you know, over over like a month. And before that there was like the forum. And then after the industry meetings, they did the screen, they're screening the films, I think still now. So it was almost like a two and a half month period. Yes. And we're also thinking about, you know, you've been to the New Orleans Film Festival, but for people who haven't, the hospitality at the festival is a really big deal. And we're trying to figure out how to still deliver some of that experience if we can't host 500 filmmakers in New Orleans. And the parties. And the parties. Where, you oh know, <laughs> I, I feel like that's like an identity crisis. Like if we can't have all those parties, what are we what are we even doing? Uh, <laughs> but I'm really the New Orleans Film Festival. No, I'm like we could be anyone if we don't have the partner. No, I'm just kidding, but I I feel like you know we're just trying to figure out. We're going back to the why we do, not the what we do, and trying to figure out how to deliver on on the the things that are beneficial to filmmakers about the festival, even if some of that has to go online. I think our pitch competitions will go online. Uh, before the festival. The festival itself will be over three weeks in November. 
And we're still going to do an industry exchange, even if it needs to be virtual. Uh, that'll probably happen in December after the, the actual film and conference piece of the festival is over. And we're looking at plans to potentially do some outdoor screenings on an LED screen just so we can gather in whatever way. Social distancing, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. But we still, uh-huh. our city is still unsure uh, what capacity theaters will be able to be at in November. Uh, right now, I think it's 25% capacity, which is really small. There's not a lot. Yeah, of, very tiny. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of theaters in New Orleans, period. Uh, after Katrina, we lost a lot of our cinemas. And so there's very few plug and play venues, which is something that the festival has to grapple with every year. And so we're thinking about. I mean, I feel like the festival, like um, under normal circumstances is a good way of like working around that because like you make screening rooms, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they you are. Tend to build them. Yeah. yeah. You build them and they, but they are smaller because of that. So. So we're just thinking about any creative ways to get around, um, get around that. But I think instead of investing in the travel piece to get filmmakers to New Orleans, we're just thinking, how can we get dollars in the hands of filmmakers? So um, we're we're aiming to pay screening fees to every film, including shorts uh, that we show. So, and I think this has all been such a reset for us, and I'm sure for a lot of organizations. There's a lot we want to change going forward. And I think this is a really good moment to reflect on organizational values and what makes our work special and kind of stop getting stuck on what we've done every year and think about what we could do and how that might look different. Um, so it's all been a really interesting journey. So I, I can't really tell you totally what's happening, you, but I you know. Don't, you don't know. <laughs> I feel safe that saying the festival is probably going to be some kind of hybrid uh, virtual and in-person event, um, but that a lot of the filmmaker interaction with the festival will be transitioned so people can engage in it from anywhere. Right. Okay. Great. Great. I know it's a lot to think about. A lot, a lot to think about. Yeah. So, so I wanted to talk about a few other things like non-festival related uh, because you are, uh, uh, you're a model. <laughs> I have one modeling gig, but thank you. I'll yes, take you it. Are, yes, so if, if you follow um, Fallon on her Instagram, which is at why possibly, and I wanted to know like why at why possibly. Because sometimes when I'm <laughs> exasperated, I'm like, why possibly would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, someone made fun of me about that, and I was like, well, I guess that's going to be my Instagram. That's your Instagram, handle. yeah. Um, but so tell us about your, oh, your modeling sheet. Cause like you had the pics all over Instagram and I had a, you, you, you were looking sharp. Let me tell you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wrote at the invitation of my friend, um, Virgie Tovar, who is a fat activist. Um, I wrote a piece for Forbes that, uh, was talking about, what it's like to be fat and, and a leader, um, and specifically fat and queer and in a leadership role. And um, that really resonated with this fashion company, um, Dia & Co. And they invited me to be part of a shoot with several other women who um, are various types of, of boss ladies or leaders in their, in their respective fields. So uh, that was a really fun, um, a fun shoot and my first professional modeling experience. Um, 
<laughs> I'm not sure if it's something I'll be invited to do again, but hey, I'm, I'm my contact information is online. So <laughs> hire Fallon. What's your rate? What's your day rate? <laughs> <laughs> it's negotiable. It's negotiable. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, and then I also wanted to um, talk about um, everything that's happening right now. Um, particularly with the protests around George George Floyd, and um, I want to I'm going to reference a Facebook post you um, wrote. I also think it's white people who care about the movement's job right now not to write off other white people who are not actively confronting racism or learning, but to engage them with as much patience and love as we can judge up online and especially offline. I think a lot of these unfollow me posts, which you have in quotes, are virtual signaling from white folks. I don't think they create change. Um, as a as a nearly so me as a nearly fifty something almost I just turned forty nine so I'm not quite at fifty yet year old black woman I stopped explaining uh, racism to white folks probably about fifteen years ago, um, but uh, I wanted you as a white person to speak to. Your white folks, because it seems like you're trying to gather your people. And I, I appreciate that. Yes, it is long overdue that we start divesting from white supremacy in every way possible. And that work doesn't get done if we can't talk to our friends and family about what is happening and what their role in that is. And I think that we need to, especially as as white people who believe in the movement and want to support that, that it's really our duty to figure out ways to get through to people in, in ways that they understand and speak on their level. You know, I, I hate, I'm going to call out my father because he's never going to listen to this. Um, but, but I have watched um, my Louisiana born white father who was a, um, he was a bull rider growing up in, in Texas and um, eventually worked in the criminal justice system, go on a journey from being very homophobic and very racist um, over 20 years of having, like diligently having these conversations. And there have been moments when I stepped back and said, you know what, I can't be in a relationship with you right now because this is harmful, actively harmful to me. And then there are moments when I've said, okay, I have to lean in and I have to talk to you about these issues because you wield an incredible amount of power in your job and in your life in the way that you impact other people. And if, if I don't talk to you about this, no one else will. And so I think we all need to think about that, about how we, white people need to think, not we all, white Thank people you. need to Thank think <laughs> about how do we go get our people right now? Because it, it, we need to be open and we need to be gentle. And the more that we write people off and believe that they can't change, the less they change. And I've seen radical transformation in this person that I really care about. And it makes me believe that that change is possible. You, I mean, you said it's been a 20 year journey with your, with your dad. How did you um, facilitate that? Has his transformation been because like you are queer and you, you're married, you, you have a partner and... I think that's part of it. I mean, I think um, I, I think there's been a lot of different elements that force change and reflection on his part. You know, as people get older, as their health changes, as they realize they are missing out on relationships with loved ones who live lifestyles they may not agree with. All of that is part of it. Um, but I think also just continuing to approach with loving kindness and respect and say, 
you know, I believe differently and push people, you know, when, when there's time to push. Um, I think that's all been a, a part of it. I remember in the film, God Loves Uganda came out, um, Roger Ross Williams film, and he was doing Q and A's. I forget what the question was, but he, he was giving this, this, um, telling the story about how he was speaking to one of the protagonists in this film, who was like one of the white missionaries who was, had come to Uganda come to spread this spread homophobia. And he says that he asked her, well, um, how do you see me? And she says, well, I know you, so I see you as my friend. But so even though she she says like Roger Wallace Williams is her friend, she's still in a position where she's like active and trying to pass these laws that are against people in that country who are um, gay and lesbian. So do you have, and this may be a bigger question, how do we transfer that, I want to say the kind of that individual, like, okay, this is me and mine, and therefore I see me and mine differently, but everybody else is still like everybody else. I know that's big. <laughs> it is big, but I think that, I think that it just takes education and the more people are willing to read and engage in dialogue around some of the stuff, the more they can make that leap from the personal to the like overarching political implications of what's happening. I mean, I, I was having a conversation with my father yesterday about the implications of Trump rolling back um, healthcare protection for trans people. And I was specifically talking about um, someone in our family who is trans. And, you know, his interest in the conversation initially was how it affects her. And um, we, we were able to talk beyond that about, you know, how does this affect trans men? Like what, the thing that's happening in Louisiana um, is that it, trans men have trouble getting access to healthcare if their license says male and they may have um, they may have a uterus that needs uh, annual checkup still. So, you know, that it was already very difficult and rolling back these federal protections makes it more difficult to, to bring lawsuits that ensure that that kind of health care can be provided to people who need it, regardless of what their license says or the way that they identify um, or, you know, all of all of the 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 things that have been complicated by rolling back these federal protections. So I think that, I think there is an instinct to think through a lens of who you know, but then there's an opportunity to pull back and think, okay, if I don't want this to happen to my loved one, you know, what is the implication for other folks in community? Um, and, and to think, to use that as a starting point, I guess, to, to have a larger conversation. But it's hard and it takes long work and it's not, you know, you can't just throw your hands up because someone doesn't understand. Um, you have to just keep keep pulling back those layers of that onion, you know? Uh, 2020 has been something else. I mean, between the pandemic and the, the murder of George George Floyd and the uprising around his, his murder, which, I mean, actually, I have, um, I'm kind of like wondering, I am kind of personally wondering like why this is, the one that's kind of setting people off because um, black men and women, but also um, brown men, you know, Latinx folks as well as indigenous folks are murdered by the police all the time. Um, I did not watch the George Floyd. Uh, I didn't watch the video because I I stopped watching those videos uh, around the 
the last video I watched was Philando Castillo. And um, I just can't do it because I um, just internalize it so much. And this does feel different. My first national uprising was Rodney King. And I remember before that verdict, um, Black folks everywhere, like even living in Georgia, we had heard how notorious the LAPD was um, before Rodney King. And um, I remember I was working on this documentary, um, Bridging the Divide, Tom Bradley and the Politics of Race. And as part of the research I was doing for that, I had to go to the LA City Archives, but uh, watching tape after tape of Daryl Gates. And this is at the time when, you know, they were busy doing the chokeholds. I can't recall how many press conferences I watched back to back, you know, these old VHS tapes of him talking about someone who had been um, either killed or um, severely injured because of a chokehold. It was usually a black or brown person. And he said, would say, um, the, they passed because um, they died or were severely injured, you know, because they did not have quote unquote normal circulatory systems, which is the same argument that they tried to use for, you know, George Floyd's you know, try to say that the initial autopsy that he had all these like pre preconditions when you know no one can survive if you're like kneeling on their neck for eight minutes and forty six um, seconds. Um, so, can you talk about uh, a little bit about what's happening um, on the ground in New Orleans, like uh, uh, around George Floyd? I know I've been kind of following some of the things you've been posting on on Facebook. Um, but also what the New Orleans Film Society is um, doing in regards. I know y'all do a lot already because I feel like y'all been doing the work. You're not brand new like some of these other folks, <laughs> but a lot of the work you're doing, uh, what's been happening on the ground, but also the work you've been you're doing for Black filmmakers. Um, you know, what's happening on the ground is what's happening across the country. People are coming together in actions demanding um divestment from white supremacy. They're demanding uh, defunding of the police. They're, we, we are coming together as a community um, to, to ask for justice. And, you know, the Film Society, I think, like many organizations, is thinking very critically right now about its role um, and is putting we're putting our entire board and staff through anti-racism training and an equity audit um, to make sure that we are showing up, you know, continuing to show up and continuing the work because the work is never done. Um, but this weekend, one small thing that we were asked to do that we were able to help with was uh, there's a, a vigil on Sunday evening, an interfaith um, memorial vigil at Congo Square where the community is coming together for some music and prayer by very many walks of life. Uh, but we also called on relationships um, that we have with sponsors who are providing the sound and our team is live streaming the event for people who can't be there. Um, and and this is, is not work that we can take credit for. We didn't organize this. We were asked by an alumni of our Emerging Voices program, who's a co-organizer of it, to, to help. So I think that's kind of where we are, is just trying to listen and show up where we can. And, you know, as the ED, I'm also just thinking about, like, 
we're, we're working on time off for people to heal. Like we're taking an entire week shut down in June for people to do whatever they need to emotionally care for themselves and giving schedule flexibility if people want to join the action. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm continually learning about ways to support my team and my community around this and am open to learning from others. So if people, you know, have good examples of what organizations are doing in the movement, especially film organizations like ours, I'm, I'm all ears because we, we definitely want to show up for the community in this as much as possible. You mentioned the anti-racism training. So what is what does that look like? Are you bringing in a facilitator or? We are. Um, our board and staff are doing separate programs. Their, their, their needs, their articulated needs are different, but our board is going through 18 hours of instruction over six weeks um, with, a, with a local facilitator, Troy Bechet. Um, and it really focuses on how we talk to one another about these issues. Uh, the, our board is really growing in its diversity, and I think they're are certainly there's certainly some work to be done around collective understanding of our values and and the ways that we interact with the movement and so this is an opportunity to have a, a facilitator really work on that um, our organization has elected its first black board president in its history uh, who starts who just starts uh, right now so uh, his name is Nathan Nathan Grant and uh, is also making commitments to to growing the percentage of uh, BIPOC board members on the board. So I think it's all moving in a really good direction, but we're also, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that maybe isn't even identified yet. So-called regional organizations like the New Orleans Film Society and others that are not located in centers of documentary power, such as New York or Los Angeles, do a tremendous amount of work and advocacy for their artists and communities with very little resources. These entities have more than proven themselves and deserve to be seen and treated as the centers of powers that they are. Fallon in particular is a staunch advocate for not only her organization, but also her community. In a world where we have been flooded with toothless, performative solidarity statements, Fallon is a powerful example of what a true leader looks like. She backs her words with actions, which are rooted in both personal and professional accountability, which is absolutely necessary for anti-racism work to be effective. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at What's Up W Docs. Again, that's at What's Up W Docs. And remember, keep telling your stories. The What's Up with Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Brunel Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas.